0: Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today's guest is acclaimed essayist and literary critic Bill Derezowitz, author of Excellent Sheep and, most recently, a collection of essays entitled The End of Solitude. We're actually going to host Bill at the Madison program via Zoom next week, so I hope you tune in for that as well to hear more from him. The sign-up link is in the show notes. For this discussion, we chat through his views on higher education based in part upon his experience teaching English at Yale. With no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Bill, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you.
1: It's nice to be here.
0: So the titular essay uh, in this volume is about solitude. Um, And a lot of the essays, both in this volume and and that you've written elsewhere, um, have to do with our education system and and how it's setting a lot of people up, if not for failure, at least for unhappiness. So to kick us off here, um, how do you relate those two ideas? Um, Are people, you know, young professionals or, you know, young kids, being trained um, how to be in solitude?
1: Oh, I, don't, I mean, nobody's being trained in how to be <laughs> in solitude. I mean, to explain, I understand solitude not as the state of being alone, but as a certain response to that state or a certain way of living in that state, which is, which is the opposite of loneliness, right? Yeah. So, you know, solitude, and it can take many forms. It needn't just be introspection or meditation. You know, any time that you metaphorically and sometimes literally shut the door and are able to be alone in a rich and full way, actually, as I said, metaphor- it can be metaphorically, you can be outside. But um, it's a form of attention in a sense. And I talk in that essay about concentration, one of the essays on solitude about concentration and the literal meaning of gathering yourself together, as opposed to being constantly dispersed, which is our experience of the internet. Yeah, I mean, it was our experience of, very often of social life before the internet, but the internet, for reasons that I don't think need to be explained, has, has changed. It's been a change in quality, it's been a change in scale. Um, what, I mean, I think you're asking me an interesting question that I, I'm not sure I've, I've pondered uh, all the way to the bottom, which is what does this, what is what I'm just talking about, how does it relate to the problems I see specifically in elite higher education, but really much more broadly in education, and that has to do with, uh, well, let's say what what kind of person, what kind of individual is our educational system designed to create, and uh, it's not that person. It's, it's not, because it's not anymore about, it doesn't, I think, anymore conceive of itself as creating a kind of person. I think in the first instance, it conceives of itself as creating a kind of economic actor, someone who's competent to be successful in the current economy. Um, more cynically, you could say someone who's fit to serve the workforce needs of others, but even, even if we expand it a little bit beyond the economic, it's almost like we think of people as like uh, like Swiss army knives. They are bundles of competence. You know, I, I know I'm, I'm going on kind of long in my answer, but let me just finish by saying something very depressing that I read in Nick Kristoff <laughs> a year or two ago, and I'm not Granted that I don't read him very often, but I don't read him because he just he the 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 depth of his the shallowness of his depth is just so depressing to me. <laughs> and you know, there's that there's that old sort of cliche that's often misattributed to Yeats that uh, uh, education isn't filling a bucket; it's lighting a fire, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty good. And I quoted an excellent sheep, Christoph. I don't know where he got this from or if he even knows what the original version is, but he says education isn't filling a bucket, it's acquiring a toolkit. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's not about acquiring a toolkit. It might be good to have a toolkit, but what are you hanging the toolkit on, the tool belt? He may have said tool belt. Who is the person that this tool belt is going around? And how are we more than just a collection of tools, that there's actually something inside operating those tools and deciding how to you know how to what to apply them to or even just the notion of a tool i mean the notion of a tool suggests that our job is to operate on some kind of problem or some kind of material again that's part of life that is not all of life
0: yeah it's a very functional view of education i guess and i think to me it seems as though it you know, people talk a lot about anxiety these days, I mean, particularly for Gen Z and, you know, mass medication going on about it and things like that. But I guess, do you see that as like related to part of this problem? Because to me, it seems like when you're, you're using this example of the tool belt, like if you don't have anywhere to hang your tool belt, there's something like inherently anxiety inducing about that.
1: Oh, that's a very, that's another interesting connection. And let me just say, it's a functional tool of, just to clarify, it's a functional tool of education because it's a functional tool of life. Right. It's like, I think one of the reasons we're anxious about robots now is because we don't understand that we're not just robots made out of flesh. Mm -hmm. You know, we're something more than that. But now you're connecting this to anxiety. Um, I think there there are a lot of, there's, uh, need to say, there's a, I mean, there's an epidemic of anxiety. Yeah in general especially among young people this was true even before the pandemic i wrote about it in excellent sheep which came out in 2014 and that was even before really the effect of the iphone so now it's been you know two more exponents mathematically speaking have been added to that first the smartphone and then the yeah. pandemic so there's this tremendous anxiety uh, i think some of it is is artificial it's it's the result of uh, of uh, of Of pressures based on false values and false perceptions of the world coming for example from the helicopter parents and some of it is quite legitimate Um, to me a lot of the underlying well one of the underlying causes of the problem with elite education is the direction that our economy has taken in the last 50 years which is increasing bifurcation between a few winners and a lot of losers that is naturally gonna create anxiety. Another direction that it's taken is that uh, the competition in the economy in general has become global and even the competition to get into places like Princeton yeah. has become global. Um, and I think that anxiety is dri- driving people to see their education and, and their life and their being in more and more functional terms. You know, how do I optimize myself for this competition? Um, but that doesn't mean that it's the right approach. It just means it's understandable.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems though, I mean, because when you talk about kind of like the concentrations of wealth, it seems to me that the wealthiest people are sometimes the most anxious. When you talk about kind of like medicated anxiety and things like that, that's very much, I think, a a disease of the wealthy.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, Uh, the wealthy, understanding the wealthy, uh, I would say uh, in terms of the upper middle class and upper class. Yeah. So the top 10 or 20%, the sort of the class that goes and sends and wants their children to go to selective colleges and universities.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it, as you say, it's, it, it's not an anxiety of survival. It's an anxiety of competition. It's an anxiety of status loss, right? and and that's why to me it's it's rooted to a great extent in in what i call false values yeah a, a false understanding of what makes for a good life
0: i mean you sort of referenced um the the tiger parent phenomenon here and it it, uh, it was interesting i think you've discussed it kind of in various places not just in this book um that you sort of correctly identify it as it's not just a matter of like some particular kind of, you know, racial demographic, but sort of a broader like middle-class or upper middle-class like focus. I mean, that, that really resonated with me at least.
1: Oh yeah. And I wasn't the only person to point this out when Tiger Mom came out. I mean, the idea that what she was describing was somehow uniquely Chinese or East Asian is ridiculous it was just an extreme version of upper middle-class practice. But the reaction to it was interesting because those same upper middle-class helicopter parents, you know, were, you know, because the, 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 as Caitlin Flanagan said recently, sort of the erotic erotic self-flagellation of the liberal elite, right? So this was another reason to say, oh, we're failing, we're failing, the Chinese are going to you know, we're so lax, we're so lax. I mean, it's all, it was nonsense, but I, I take it that it was sort of a, an additional spur to even greater uh, feats of uh, child torture, which is what that book describes. I mean, I've described Tiger Mother as like if Moby Dick had been, um, had been narrated by Ahab. <laughs> That's what that book is like. It's this monomaniacal, pointless quest and everyone's going to die in the end.
0: <laughs> um, I mean so there, there's a concept and I can't remember where I read it but um, this concept that I think really relates to this uh, that I call like the tyranny of the nerds and basically this is the idea that there's sort of this artificial it's not supposed to happen that we're giving kind of like the nerdiest most bookish people all the power in our society I mean whatever if you go back however many thousand years it would have been the people who today are jocks, whoever the physically strongest, there's an argument to be made that maybe it was the people who kind of had the most cool. noble lineage or social cachet or or um, you know social skills or things like that. So I guess I'm wondering if you agree that that's like kind of the system that we're living in at the outset, but also like, is that kind of system Um, Is it working? Are there advantages or disadvantages to having that kind of that particular type of hoops that you have to jump through to be successful?
1: Right. So um, I I think you say quite right. And I think it's something I, I, I think about from time to time. Uh, and it's interesting to kind of look at what you know different societies and what they value. But it seems clear, it's logical that they're going to value that which makes the society the most, the strongest, the most prosperous. I mean, sometimes those perceptions are wrong. Sometimes an elite becomes op- obsolescent. But obviously, it makes sense that you know, you know, in in some societies, the warrior class is the most valued, and they're the ones in charge. And now. What makes for our prosperity? Well, we live in an age of, of science, broadly speaking, uh, you know, of expertise, of experts, of technocrats. And, you know, to a great extent, it's perfectly appropriate that those people would be select selected. And re- the question of reward is a different question. But um, I'm not in principle uh, against meritocracy as long as we understand what it means yeah. and and the competition is fair and people are prepared for it. Uh, fairly which i don't think is the case but the the interesting question you raise is like is and, and i think some of my work raises is like is this really you know i mean granted that what you're calling nerd nerdiness book smarts expertise tech, tech, technocratic expertise is very important but is it the only thing that's important yeah and this 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 raises that the difference between an expert and a leader and That word leader or leadership is much abused, rarely defined clearly or satisfactorily. But it's a thing. I mean, however badly we understand it, it's clearly a thing. So do we want... that? We need technocrats. Do we want them to be in charge? What other aspects of character are important for effective leadership? And I guess one way to talk about my critique of our leadership class, which I kind of get to it towards the end of Excellence Sheep, is that um, we haven't given our leaders any other qualities of character. I mean, nerdiness itself isn't actually a quality of character at all, maybe a quality of intellect and performance, but the selective college system that supposedly, that does select for these nerds um, creates a certain kind of character. And it's a terrible character for leadership. I think it's a terrible character for happiness in marriage and many other things. But I mean, you know, so you have these risk averse, very narrowly focused, uh, Mm. self-aggrandizing, et cetera, et cetera. And then you put those people in charge of society and you get the kind of elite failure that we've seen for at least 20 years. I'm certainly not the first one to write about this. George Packer had a piece in The Atlantic a long time ago about this, and many others have written about
0: it. I mean, it seems to me part of the issue is there's, there's a real risk in articulating a positive vision for what education should achieve. Um, and, uh, I mean, especially kind of in the current political climate, it feels like there's just risk about saying a lot of, like, you know, sort of, positive firm statements about you know what kind of person you're trying to form and things like that. So I guess do you have any thoughts on like how to go about articulating kind of a, a, a more positive vision of what an education should actually achieve beyond just kind of like the technocratic nerd book smart you know
1: Yeah, let me disagree with you a little bit. I don't think it's controversial. Mm-hmm to talk about what kind of person education should create. I okay. think it's controversial to posit anything other than the official one now. One of the things that's so terrifying to me about the current condition is how uh, certain and adamant and it is about exactly the kind of person it wants to create.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: And it's that you know, person who quote unquote wants to change the world. Mm wants to make the world a better place. Now, obviously, neither of those are problematic if you were coming from Mars and just heard those words. What's problematic is that we know exactly what that means. It's an extremely specific vision of what you're supposed to care about, how you're supposed to go about doing it, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to be... This is not going to probably sound very satisfying, (laughs) but it's the best I can do because I think it's inherently difficult. But I would say... uh, I think the goal of education should be to create individuals. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean? It means, you know, I mean, I've written about this a lot. It means, well, first of all, it means not having a specific vision of what you want. You're giving giving your students the ability to be different, to be themselves, to... um, i'm I'm really straining for specific language that goes beyond <laughs> cliches. But
0: specificity is the problem. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> well,
1: well, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm trying to be specific. It's tough. I'm trying to be specific about about non-specificity. This is the point. right. So let me just We're give right. you an example. I mean, this is not the whole thing, but let me just retail this anecdote. I was talking to a professor I knew when I was a graduate student at Columbia, and she was talking about how, we should quote unquote in, teach our students to instrumentalize her word, what they learn from us. And aside from the other problems with that idea, like who the hell are we as professors? Because what, what do we know about anything in the real world, in the outside world, not the real world, but the outside world beyond the walls. But granted a premise, I said, okay, as long as you'd be okay with your students instrumentalizing what they learn from you to try to overturn Roe versus Wade right this was actually before it was actually overturned now i viewed that prospect with horror she viewed it with even more horror but the point is if you're doing your job as a teacher if you're approaching your students with the respect that you must to do an ethical job as a teacher you have to leave room for that possibility because your student might decide might already feel might come to decide that Roe, Roe v Wade was wrong. And the point is to help them be as strong a person as they can be. Yeah uh, not to teach them what to think. And yes, you know the, the I've said this myself, not what to think but how to think, although that's still a real thing. but it's more than just thinking, right It's having that strength, of of moral independence, that ability to say, everybody else is doing this, I'm going to do this other thing. Everybody expects me to do this, I'm going to do this other thing. That's what I mean by an individual, someone who can stand on their own two feet, someone who has that kind of moral autonomy.
0: I mean, it's interesting when when you talk about this, I think so much about, I went to school in Silicon Valley, um and there's just like a lot of confusing messages about this coming from there i guess because on the one hand they really emphasize autonomy a lot and on the other as you note this kind of like stereotypical person who's gonna change the world uh silicon valley is definitely like the epicenter of that where everyone kind of has the one wrote like i'm gonna have a startup and that's gonna be that you know
1: did you, when you said you went to school there, do you mean Stanford?
0: I do, yes. <laughs>
1: well, look at, I mean, just look at what's happening to Stanford. Yeah, and you can see,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: You can see the just comprehensive amorality. Totally. Of technocratic education. I mean, the pre- the scandal with the president, the scandal with a guy who faked his results, the scandal with Sam Bankman-Fried, the scandal with Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. Yeah. And God knows how many other things that we don't know about yet. And this is the problem. And the change the world language is simply a fig leaf for all of that. Or, you know, if you're at a liberal arts college, if you know you're at Scripps College or something, then it has an extremely specific meaning, which is, you know, borderline authoritarian.
0: Right. 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 Oh, don't get me started on the recent scandals at Stanford, or this will be an entire podcast of just me. I have so many opinions. But, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but yeah but it's the chickens
1: coming home to roost. You're
0: totally right. You're totally right. And I think, especially as an undergrad who was there while all of this had not yet come to fruition, uh, but you know, all of the pieces were in play there. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's happened is just like super predictable. You know, everyone's like, oh, I can't believe that this, you know, authoritarian speech code or whatever came out of the IT department of all places. And I'm like, you can't? How come? Um, Just that it's like, it's not, I think people... F- put people who work in anything technology like on a pedestal and they say oh well it's technology it's so it you know it must be anything to do with computers you know must be kind of like serious and apolitical and it's not the case i mean the people in it are bureaucrats like everyone else and stanford particularly actually this is something i wanted to ask you about stanford's at least when I was there it was really big on this idea of like CS plus social good of like combining oh, yeah. the humanities with computer science. The idea being that I guess humanities are just inherently about ethics. Um, and that by inserting, I'm betraying my own opinion about it the way I'm talking about it, but that by inserting is some, quote-unquote humanities, which is always one giant group at Stanford. The humanities is just like one building or whatever, one giant group of all the humanities um, into computer science. This will teach computer scientists how to be moral. Um, so I guess, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that there's kind of a a way in which that's helpful?
1: Well, it's, I mean, that was perfect, because I was already <laughs> thinking this, right? Now, yeah, just let me stipulate at the outset that it, it is not the case that if you read Plato and you read Shakespeare, you're somehow magically going to become a good person. That's nonsense. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But I do think that these things do have ethical value. Yeah. Because they 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 are they are ways to get at self reflection. Yeah. You know they're ways to to take a look at yourself and create some awareness of who you are as a person and maybe who you want to be and maybe where you fall short and 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 also and also and these are really two sides of the same coin some disciplined awareness of other people
0: yeah
1: other people as equally real other people as centers of their own universe and therefore society is something that we all have to we have to somehow bring these centers together right yeah and when I see, so often when I hear about some innovation in technology or some, some catastrophe that's resulted from innovation in technology, I think these are people who've had no humanities in their education. They're just not aware of hu- the human dimensions of problems.
0: Totally. The human
1: dimensions of problems. Um, at the same time, it's really funny the way you frame the question. Like, let's we just need to add some humanities into the mix. Because I've noticed, my analogy for this is um, I assume kids still eat these kinds of cereals? Probably not the kids who go to, who get to the Ivy League, but you know, <laughs> you know it's basically sugared cardboard.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: and then you add you know fifteen vitamins and minerals. So basically, you take all the nutrition out of food and you artificially add it back. And that to me is my analogy for the education that we have, which is you know sugared cardboard, and then we add in creativity. Leadership, uh, you know, various other things that that are not, they're not things that you can teach by teaching them in a curriculum, by teaching them in a classroom, right? You can't add them back. You can't add ethics back in. You can only have an education and an upbringing and an institution that embodies those things and creates them as emerging qualities. Yeah. So... Probably, you know. yeah, sure. I think it's better for computer scientists to have humanity than not. But the idea that that's going to solve the problem, as a, as opposed to changing the whole, the whole. <laughs> you I don't even know where to start, right? I mean, you have to tear it down from the beginning, right? Otherwise, you know, what are you going to? You're going to end up with a Sam Bankman-Fried who's read Shakespeare. Yeah. And you know, maybe he'll be able to like slap a quote from Shakespeare on the prospectus for his Nest Ponzi scheme.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think also uh, I'm, I'm headed down a Stanford track, but my mind's there. We're doing it anyway. Um, okay. <laughs> but um, kind of what I, what I refer to also in the initial question, I mean, this idea that like the humanities are just like this behemoth, like I was at one point in at Stanford, you have these things called theme houses um, mm-hmm. where you sort into everyone who's interested in environmental whatever, you know, there's a dorm for that. And they have one that's just for the humanities, like all the humanities, the humanities theme house. Um, and it's just like a, a weird concept, right? That like the humanities have become like like a department, like computer science or whatever. It's like, that's just a behemoth. And I, I to me, I don't know if you agree, that's also part of the issue with like saying, oh, like CS plus humanities is that it's just like this weird, like hyper watered down version of it. That's like super divorced from what it actually is.
1: Right. I think what you're saying, I mean, first of all, what i mean about the theme it's almost like (laughs) humanities is some like weird little idiosyncratic interest you know like collecting crystals yeah right it's just this funny thing that a few people still do yeah 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 as opposed to what it should be in my view which is the center of a college education yeah um uh but i think you're also saying that you know It's sort of just becoming this idea. And I'm guessing, you know, I think what you're really trying to tell me is that at Stanford (laughs) when they say CS plus humanities, it's this absurdly attenuated idea of what the humanities are.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Again, it's just like a little tattoo that you're going to rub onto the thing.
0: Yeah, totally. As
1: opposed to something that's supposed to be about foundations, about the whole purpose Of the enterprise, about what the enterprise is even going to be in the first place. And by enterprise, I just don't mean the enterprise of college. I mean the enterprise of your life and the enterprise of society. Like, what are we trying to get at here and why? And those are the questions that the humanities asks. And the other disciplines, especially CS, they're literally not set up to ask those questions. They're very powerful disciplines in terms of creating tools, right? They will be able to help you do what you want to do then the question but the first question is what do you want to do and why do you want to do it yeah and computers don't help you answer that question they can't help you answer that question because those are questions of value they're not questions of fact
0: yeah and there's definitely uh, a belief in silicon valley that like kind of no matter the question you know, the the social I mean, in some ways, that's kind of just what the social sciences were created for is like how do we apply a statistic to answer those questions, you know, regardless of the nature of the question?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right,
0: um, so we've talked a lot about kind of the elite side of this. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about um the non-elite half of this, uh, because it was one of the things that. Really appeal to me about your book is kind of like the dirty truth that a lot of people don't want to talk about, um, which is that going to an elite institution acculturates you um, to to be a member of the elite. So I guess uh, to kick this off, can you you know kind of talk about that a little bit? Um, Because it was interesting to me some of your examples of the ways in which uh, the very different ways in which. Elite and non elite institutions function and how they treat their students.
1: Oh, oh! I think you're referring to how I talk about, you know, you're basically being prepared yeah. to occupy a certain class position. Um, there's a great, I don't know if I referenced this in specifically, but I discovered in the course of thinking about this a great uh, paper, uh, I think, by a sociologist from many years ago from the 80s. So there is some good to sociology. <laughs> Her name is Jean Anion, A N Y O N. I think she's still on the faculty somewhere, but she went to a bunch of public schools in the, uh, in the Newark and surrounding suburbs. And it was beautiful. She was like four different class levels, even a difference between the upper middle class and the upper class, like right. the upper middle class are trained to sort of be creative and they end up being like professional knowledge and creative workers. And the upper class is kind of trained for mastery. Right. And then the lower class is basically trained to go to prison. And then oh. somewhere in the middle, you have a working class that's trained for obedience. I don't know if she says the prison thing, but I mean, and, and by trained, what I mean is that you're treated the way you're going to be, you're treated in school mm. the way that you're going to be treated in your job. Right. Um, and I even noticed this because I talk about a, a good friend who went to Cleveland State University and I just, just her telling me about the kinds of expectations, what happens if you hand a paper in late? Yeah. You know, she got a D once for handing it a paper like an hour late because there, there's no flexibility at the, at the class level for which people who go to places like Cleveland State are being prepared. Whereas if you go to Princeton, there's always a second chance. There's always a second chance for the elite. So um, I think that's what you're referring to let me also just say, because I think this can be disguised, maybe some people don't understand this, I think anybody who knows anything knows that historically schools like Princeton were training grounds for the, you know, the sons of the wasp aristocracy. It was all about learning how to talk and how to hold yourself and blah, blah, blah. And That's what the eating clubs were about and the whole, the whole thing. And it's easy to look back on it and see that social reproduction happening and it's kind of funny because you know well that never changed Mm. that never changed i mean the composition changed and the mores changed but uh it just changed gradually and people were socialized into it so it's not just that the structure still exists like the eating clubs it's that these institutions They're not just credentialing institutions and institutions that produce people with technocratic skills. You're being socialized, if you weren't already, you know, growing up, into the folkways of the ruling class. It's just now that includes things like wokeness. It includes certain cultural references that may be different than they were 100 years ago because the Western classics aren't really part of them anymore. But, and the differences between you and someone who went to even a like I don't know, Penn State, are like really obvious once you rub up against people who were socialized differently. It's just you don't notice it because you're you're in that environment a hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it yeah, I, I think it's like I said, it's kind of the underbelly that people don't like to talk about. Um, people at, at elite schools. It's sort of like in the water, everyone knows that there, you know, there's a very high percentage of rich people at these places. But certainly the administration downplays it as much as possible and pretends to be kind of completely a representative. You know, we have like at least one kid from each of the 50 states, you know, instead of talking, about yeah, well, which kid did you pick? <laughs> that's right,
1: that's right. Um, but but just again, just to be really clear, it's not just that so many of the kids are rich, although they are. It's an absurd percentage, right? Um, but that everyone is being trained in including the rich kids, is, are being trained in a certain way of being.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I'll never forget, I had a TA one year at Yale who had gone to college at Rutgers. And she said that uh, it wasn't until she became a TA and, uh, and had to run discussion sections that she understood that at Yale, uh, literature classes are like dinner parties. Funny. That's how she put it. It's like you're trained you're being trained to be at a dinner party. And a certain way of talking about literature is gonna be the way that you talk about, you know, the ladies HBO show when you're at the dinner party.
0: Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah, that really hit me in the gut when she said that.
0: Um I guess I mean to, part of what feels strange about it, I guess, is the dishonesty, right? Because it seems to me like, obviously, it's hard to avoid, not impossible, but difficult to avoid there kind of being a class structure. And the idea of people entering training that's going to help them with their future job, even though, I mean, when you use the prison example, it sounds absolutely terrible, but examples that are maybe a little happier than prison, it's generally good to have your education prepare you. Um for what you're going to do. So I guess my question would be, do you think that the problem with that kind of system is just the dishonesty, that it's pretending it's something that it's not? Or do you think that there's like actually like a deeper structural issue?
1: Oh yeah. No, no, no. It's I mean the dishonesty is 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 horrifying and leads to all kinds of, you know, we can even begin to talk about that. But no, I mean I mean, what was Jean Anion's point? It wasn't just, you know the working class is sort of being socialized into being working class it's that like they're not being given a choice to be anything else right i mean if somebody chooses to go to trade school and i think we should have a lot more trade schools and funding and encouragement and blah 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 chooses to go to trade school and trade school you interact in a way that you know socializes you to be a tradesperson. great but what what's really and I said this when I said meritocracy in principle isn't that bad I, is a good idea but how do we yeah run our meritocracy yeah. is that the opportunities you know I we do not have anything remotely resembling equality of opportunity that's the problem and if we you know if it were the case that dumb rich kids let alone dumb rich lazy kids <laughs> were uh you know tr- you know headed toward were shunted towards a life of Working class labor, which is the only thing that their skills are good for, or their likely skills are good for, that would be justice. That would be fair. And the smart, poor kid, instead of being prevented from going to college by cost, as so many of them are, were given a real opportunity. And you didn't have more kids from the top 1% than from the bottom 60% at most of the Ivy Leagues. That's what you have now. Okay, then that, that would be fair. I also think we need to shrink the differential between working class pay and upper class pay. It's, you know, it should be a 10th or a 100th of what it is now. But let's begin with that. A basic unfairness is that people don't really have a chance.
0: And you talk so powerfully about like the awkwardness of the interaction, which is something that I see so much, like when a person who's in this kind of environment suddenly has to like actually have a conversation with someone who wasn't raised in it. Um, Yeah, it's super true. And it does, again, it felt like when I was an undergraduate, there was sort of like a, I mean, people had sort of strange views about it, right? Where it was like, Oh like we the students are like going to protest for higher pay for the dining hall workers and you're like well <laughs> like for what for for like another check on your resume because functionally that's kind of what it is that's why you do most things that you do when you're at Stanford or Princeton right so, yeah, it's like a it's a weird cognitive dissonance. I guess my question to you would be, I mean, for me, uh, you know, being involved in religious life was something that was really helpful for me all through my childhood and everything um, interacting with different types of people from different types of backgrounds. I'm sort of I'm an evangelical and that is particularly, you know, a, a big mixing pot. Um so, I guess from a solutions perspective, do you, do you see any kind of solutions to that kind of like, as as you put it, like a total lack of that element in the edu- in the education?
1: Well, I mean, there there are. I mean, there might be solutions, but there's such fun. There's solutions that go to really fundamental things. They're not like easy, you know, like completely restructure society. I mean, so uh, but just let me say a couple of things. And it took me fairly long in the process of writing Excellent Sheep to get to this. for a long time I was like, what can we do with to make the Ivy Leagues different and better, starting, you know, especially the admissions process. And then I finally realized like it's not really about that. Okay. I mean, we we can improve these eight schools, or let's say 20 most elite colleges. The real problem is that everyone feels the need to go to these eight or twenty colleges, right? So what we need is, I mean, we used to have free. Free and very high and in some cases, very high quality public education, right? The University of California was free until the early 80s. I mean, there it was tuition free until the early 80s. There weren't any, even any fees until the 70s. And it was the University of California, the greatest public system in the world. That's what we need to go back to so people don't have to worry about getting into Princeton. Um, beyond that, you know, it's not even that I want the Princeton students or the Princeton graduates to sort of be... I mean, yes, I would like them to to know how to talk to every other kind of person in the world. But it's not that I want them to be better at helping the dining hall workers. I want the dining hall workers to do it themselves. And that means re- another thing that we had, and maybe I'm being nostalgic or, you know, it's not really... You can't go backwards, but that's another thing we had in the heyday of the middle class, the middle decades of the 20th century. We had a very strong union movement. And there are reasons why unions declined, but one of the big reasons is that government, the federal government, became hostile to unions and did everything it could to weaken them. So, you know... Yeah, I mean, I and mean, I think this about the Democratic Party all the time. It's not, well, I, okay, so the, you say evangelical. So I love something that Mike Huckabee, who's not a person I love in general, used to say when he was running or sort of sniffing around running for president, he would say that when he went to evangelical audiences, he would say, I'm not coming to you, I'm coming from you. I want the liberal establishment, the Democratic Party, the elite, I don't want them to come to the working and middle classes in a better way. I want them to come from the working classes and the middle classes. I mean, most of the country does not have a college degree. That's the problem. And it'll never, yeah, <laughs> it'll only ever be sort of benign condescension of a more or less informed sort yeah. until that happens.
0: Yeah. So one kind of tension, I guess, that I see is, uh, you know, you talk a lot about uh, the need for a liberal education that's mass, that's for everyone. Everyone gets a liberal education that, you you know, you talk about um, in the end of Solitude the book Um, and uh, (laughs) I guess the capitalist response um would be well there isn't really a demand for um you know for that kind of education and actually i my my feeling is there's particularly not a demand for it from the kind of working class people who the, you know the demand is for kind of a more vocational education so i guess how how do you square that circle
1: but so first of all i would like to see more demand for a liberal education among the people who go to liberal arts institutions like Princeton. I don't see a lot of demand for that either. Yeah, but agreed. what I would say is look back, look back again to the decades after World War II, when we had this huge explosion in higher education. I think the number of college students quintupled, if I remember, from like 1940 to 1980. Uh, we had the GI Bill. We had the huge expansion of public higher education when it was still really cheap, if not free. And that was also the heyday of the humanities major. It was the heyday of the English major. Demand has to do with, uh, I mean, demand to a certain extent is created by supply or it's influenced by supply. And when the the liberal education was in abundant uh, supply, it was cheap also, there was a high demand for it. So I I mean, listen, I I agree with you that the poorer you are, probably the less likely you are to want just for practical reasons. You may not even know what it is, right? Uh, but that's the barrier that I want to remove. That like you, you know, that economic necessity of having to major in something practical.
0: I guess to kind of tie the bow on this, uh, you know, I jumped off, you know, asking about how to square this difficulty with solitude um, with kind of our education system. Um, in, in the latter part of your book, you you get pretty personal, um, talking about your relationship, uh, with Judaism, um, and to me, it seems like those kinds of communities. When you talk about a community, I mean, particularly, you know, one that unplugs from technology very religiously, um, once a week, um, but also one that has, you know, a a culture. I think more so than kind of the regular modern culture, um, of. Of Solitude and of kind of learning in that sense, and there are a lot of people I think of your generation who had a, you know a similar kind of fall from faith. Um, do you see uh, a connection between those kinds of falls from faith and the struggles that people have with solitude?
1: Well, I think it's complicated. I think what you're what you're suggesting is that religious faith can cultivate and maybe more to the point religious community, and cultivate some of the qualities that I want people to be able to cultivate. And I think that that's true. I think that there are certainly plenty of religious situations where the opposite happens. It isn't necessarily the case. Um, And I say that even based on my own experience in an Orthodox community. But here's what I would really say. And I, you know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you know, there is certainly I, I, I see a lot of talk, you know, as our society continues to disintegrate from people like Ross Douthat, who I have tremendous respect for about how, look, this is what happens when we lose religion. We need to recapture religion. And, and again, part of my answer is like, you know, there's good religion and bad religion. Let's not kid ourselves. Um... But I would. But the main thing is, like, we're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't. I mean, maybe, maybe it would be good for people to be able to do that. To people to do that, for there to be a return to religion. Is that really going to happen? I mean, I think there are lots of reasons to believe that it's not really going to happen. I mean, one thing is just secular skepticism, which is what brought me out of religion. Just a loss of faith. Another thing, quite frankly, is that the churches have done everything they could to discredit themselves in many ways. You know, I mean, not everything they could, but I mean, look, look at the Catholic sex abuse scandal. Look at the scandals in evangelical churches. It's not like the churches as institutions, I mean, certainly with exceptions, but they don't, they're not making themselves very attractive in a lot. You know, maybe maybe they just need the message better, but I don't think it's just that. So I guess what I'm saying is that religion can be a great f- form of sustenance for those who, are, who feel called to participate in it. But to me, the real problem, and it is a real problem, is how can we, how can we get those things without institutional religion, given the fact that we know realistically many people, and indeed more and more people, will not situate themselves within institutional religion. And that's, I mean, I wrote a piece recently about secularism and religion and the limits of secularism, secular humanism, which I identify with very strongly, but recognizing its limits, recognizing its limits precisely because it is so weakly institutionalized. You know, you don't really, I know there's sort of secular humanist churches. I mean, I would never set foot in any of them they just sound ridiculously hokey to me and <laughs> artificial. And the traditions need to be old, otherwise they don't have power.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, right. So you don't really have you don't have the element of practice, right? I mean, I come from Orthodox Judaism. It's all about practice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, a spiritual life, even my own secular spiritual life, is to a great extent about practice. They may not be formal practices. Yeah. But um, secularism, as such, doesn't really have practices. Yeah. It doesn't have any institutional way of teaching it, practices of maintaining practices of theorizing practices how, how do how do we do this it's i don't i don't have an answer yet
0: yeah absolutely well i will link that piece in the show notes uh this has been super interesting bill thank you so much for taking the time
1: okay thank you thank you very much
0: Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Build to reflecting on the humanities, education, and solitude. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow, subscribe, and give us a review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, and find out more about what we do at jmp.princeton.edu. Thanks so much for joining us here on Madison's Notes.